Hey, hey, Tony Gaskins here, back with another episode. Now, I'm still telling my story. For those of you who don't know, this is the long-winded version. And try not to judge me too hard because I'm sharing things with you that most people would not share. A lot of times when a person is a public figure, they try to hide their past and they don't tell the nitty-gritty, the, the dirty secrets, the mistakes because... The world can be very harsh and the world will use your story against you to belittle you and bash you and call you out and tell you why you aren't certified to speak on what you're speaking on. But I choose to take a different approach because I want everybody to understand that we all live a, a life with mistakes and that we can come to a place to where we can teach from those mistakes and we can help others. And our story is for God's glory because the change that happens in our life, others should see and hear and witness that change as well. So in this part of my story, I'm heading into my sophomore year of college, which is sophomore in the classroom, but what we call a red shirt freshman on the football field. And I can't really remember everything about that year because I, I remember I got into a relationship and I, I mentioned this where I was in a relationship with the young lady and as I was cheating, she was cheating. And my roommate would tell her, not my roommate, guy across the hall would tell her that I was cheating. And so here I am, you know, I'm, I'm just dating around looking for something or somebody to talk to and going through the motions. And so I was in this relationship for about a year. And this was with a white female. And so it was interracial. You're in West Virginia. It's 1% black. And then I remember these guys, I was standing with her outside of Walmart about to get in the car or putting up bags or something and these young white guys they were in a pickup truck and they rolled by and they played this song from the movie American History X and it says and we washed ourselves in ends blood when I say in I'm saying that's for the n-word that black people were called you know you know as the the racist term n-i-g you know where i'm going with that and we washed ourselves in ends blood and blood meaning b-l-o-o-d and i was like wow and they circled around twice and they didn't look at me they didn't say anything to me they just let that song speak and it just was you know they were showing their discontent for a black guy being with a white girl and you know I, I kind of took note to that and I remember one time riding on the highway and you could look down over the side of the highway and I saw and I was in West Virginia and I saw the the cross burning in the yard um, and a group of Ku Klux Klan around the cross and, and I didn't really you know understand that but I, I know just about four years earlier four or five years earlier the Ku Klux Klan came to my middle school in Florida so this was kind of like a 
reoccurring theme and this relationship it just kind of happened like I wasn't trying to date outside of my race or I didn't have a preference for dating outside of my race it's really not accepted where I'm from and so I just was I, I met the young lady in the library and she kind of you know shot me the eye and then connected with me and one thing led to another and just not having anybody to talk to not knowing anybody just one thing led to another and then she kept reaching out every day hey what are you doing what are you up to and so it just was kind of passing the time like boredom just you know something something to fill the space and then next thing you know it turns into a little relationship and it was a lot of perks in it for me because she had a car she had a savings and so you know she was buying me clothes buying me food every day let me drive her car every day you know and I remember when she told me like she spent her whole savings because she had like a college savings which I had never really heard of that coming from where I'm from I didn't have anything saved but she had an account with you know hundreds of dollars in it or maybe a couple grand I'm not sure but she was you know spending pretty freely and having a car and it was like a you know nice little car and get around and newer model and so you know her family had their stuff together and i didn't have a car and so it was like one of those things i'm i'm in it for the perks and what the the running back that was a little older than me when it when our senior he maybe was a junior or senior but he tore his acl and the coach put me up next in line after him when in practice i was in third string i would be the third person to get reps and the coach was letting the guy that was a year older than me go second. But then when it came time for the game, after the first string running back got hurt, the coach bumped me up the first string. And the guy that was in front of me, he bumped him behind me to second string. And so here I am. I'm, I'm starting a game. Red shirt freshman. I'm going to be starting. And I just, for the first time in my life, for one, I'm living in fornication. I know God. And I'm living in a backslidden state. So I wasn't doing the right thing. And I get ready to go to this game. And I tell myself, you know what? I'm not going to get the butterflies. I'm not going to get nervous. And I think I took this approach because our starting running back who got hurt, he would throw up before every game. And I mean, he would be throwing up, throwing up, throwing up. And I'm like, this guy's not going to be able to play. So I'm, I'm about to get to... I'm about to get to play. This guy has like pneumonia or something, but he would do that every single game. I never in my life got that nervous. I don't really understand being that nervous, but that's how a lot of, you know, guys were, especially, I don't know, running backs or whatever. Um, some wide receivers and cornerbacks were like that too. I'd never seen the offensive defensive lineman get sick like that, but I don't know. So, I'm I, I'm just like not feeling anything. I'm just real numb, and that and honestly it messed me up because every game all my life I would get butterflies, and then when I get the ball, I'm just like running to save my life, and it made me a lot better. But here I was, kind of like a days ago, and kind of out of it. I'm looking into the stands at my quote unquote girlfriend, and you know she's there supporting, and that was kind of awkward because. <laughs> I didn't really want to be in the relationship, but you know, it was kind of like my meal ticket. I'm away from home. My parents are going through their issues, getting ready to go through a divorce. And so they're not really sending me money like that. And 
and then anything you get you know you want to spend more than that so here I am um I get the ball and I come through the offensive line and I fumble the ball and they I think they recovered it so my coach he you know he yelled at me cursed at me but he put me back in there he gives me the ball again and I fumble again and this time I took off running after it and I think I went to recover it but that was the end of it so then he he bumps in his son above the second string running back he puts his son in to run the ball and then he puts one of the receivers in to run the ball and then he gave me the ball three more times in like the fourth quarter and when I got the ball then I didn't fumble it I mean I was holding that thing so tight with two hands I couldn't fumble it but that was my first and last time starting as a college athlete and that's why you know if you google me from Tony Gaskins college football nothing will come up just because after that the coach you know he went I gave him the reason I gave him a good enough excuse to not continue playing me and so it was like eh, I don't I don't think Tony practiced hard enough he gets in he fumbles the ball twice he has a white girlfriend so it was like everything was working against me and I say a white girlfriend, and I know sometimes some of the, you know, white women get upset like that, but this is just the reality of it. My assistant coach, he came to me. He said, Tony, why are you messing with our women? And I was like, Coach, I'm not messing with your women. Your women are messing with me. And he was asking me, why do I talk to white girls? Which is a question that, you know, a coach should not ask a player especially in like 2003 or something like that 2004 but it was you know it just shows you where the racial relations were in the world at that time still and so that played a part into it and and it it was crazy because it was like I remember when when I dated a white girl in high school in like I don't know 11th or 12th grade and her dad went to my dad and told my dad hey my daughter is not going to be able to get a volleyball scholarship if she's dating your son she's not going to be able to get a job if she's dating your son and when my dad told me that I was like that's absurd that is insane and but then I remember my coach asking me that in high school Tony are you an athlete or a lover because that young lady had a car and she brought me lunch to during a football camp and and then in college I get the same type of question and so it just kind of showed me like as I got older and I look back I'm like you know what that probably played a part in my coach not liking me and just them looking at my relationship status and then other it was other guys on the team the other running back he started dating you know a white woman and that kind of yeah, it didn't affect him because he he performed well so if you're performing they don't really care you know but me if you got something that the coach doesn't like or a couple things the coach doesn't like and you're not performing well it's a wrap they're not going to go out of their way to keep giving you chances so now that i'm hurt this sophomore year i can't remember if it was sophomore year um me and the young lady 
I think the young lady, um, the white girl was my freshman year, I believe. And then my sophomore year, I started dating a black girl and her and I, we, you know, just when I would get in a relationship, I would spend all every waking moment of the day with a woman. And it really just came from fear and loneliness and insecurity. I remember my friend who was like, I don't know, he looked tough to me because he had dreads and he had gold teeth, but that's just, you know, what we do in Florida. But I remember when we would get on the plane or get on the road to go to college, he would cry because he would miss his mom and dad so much like just being homesick he would be crying and i never understood that because i was like man shoot i'm ready to get away from my parents because my parents real strict you know in the church and but when i would get up there in west virginia i i guess would be lonely and so i would just kind of keep a woman beside me you know i was just always very clingy you know to a woman and all of my my teammates, they would have, some of them would have girlfriends, but they would have a lot of guy time. They would go to the club with the guys. They would hang out Saturday and Sunday with the guys, and they would watch uh, the football games and just kind of call their girlfriend. And they would hang out and watch, you know, the nasty movies together and on, on TV. And I would just kind of pop in, pop my head in, make fun of them you know, being eight to 10 guys in one little small dorm room. If you ever went to college, you know how big a dorm room is. It's not that big. And there's already a bunk bed in there. Then it's already two desks in there for studying. And then, so you got this little sliver of, you know, room and there'll be 10 guys in there sitting on the floor, sitting in chairs. And they watching a football game on a 13 inch TV, 13 inches now. 13 inch tv or watching a nasty movie porno and i would just pop in there make fun of them and i'm going about my business and so i never hung out with the guys i was always you know with me a woman and that's just what i'm like why am i gonna be hanging around these men i'm like i want to be able to have me some conversation with the opposite sex i want to be able to go to the mall go to the movies like hang out like i just it did not make sense to me guys just kind of sitting around each other smelling each other grown musky men and and i just i was intrigued and i think being away being alone you know and just being able to be around a woman i that's where i wanted to be but it stole my focus so with the guys hanging together they love to work out they love to watch football they go hard in practice me if i'm with a woman that means i'm in there doing the wrong stuff i'm in that bed doing what you ain't supposed to be doing breaking my body down breaking my knees down losing my focus staying up at three o'clock in the morning and got to be up at 6 a.m because i was in the breakfast club where to gain weight I had to wake up every morning and go eat breakfast versus sleeping past breakfast. But when you're not sleeping well, you're not really going to gain any weight, any healthy weight when you're working out so hard. So I'm burning all these calories, but then I'm not eating that much. So 
I came into college like 158 pounds and I got up to 170 eventually but you know it took a whole lot to put them 12 pounds on and I was all muscle you know eight pack of abs and you could see ribs too though and you know chest and arms I was just muscle bound but real light in the pants 165 to 170 and the coaches they didn't like that our starting running back was like 200 pounds and you look in the NFL that's the case so here I am I'm just distracted so I'm not enjoying practice now I'm faking injuries you know I tore one hamstring tore the other hamstring those weren't fake dislocated my shoulder got a hip pointer you know got a concussion another concussion and this went all the way on until my third year in college I come back to the school I'm in the relationship with the young lady and her and I I mean it started to get toxic and a lot going on in there just you know she was Muslim converted to Christianity for me but I wasn't really a real Christian because I wasn't living right and we're just going through the motions you know she played soccer and I played football and so I'm at the game the coach would put me in the game like fourth quarter but he wouldn't give me the ball and I think at this point he just didn't like me because he asked me could he take some of my scholarship money back and I told him no and so after that he was mad and he was looking for a way to get rid of me so he could get that $28,000 that he was allotting to me to not be on the field he wanted to be able to divide that up against to some other guys or bring in some other players so he didn't play me because I was it also would have looked weird if he didn't play me because I didn't get in trouble in school and my grades were up so I was eligible academically and I didn't get in trouble at all in school I just didn't talk to him I didn't laugh at his jokes I didn't you know I didn't come early, leave late. I didn't do anything extra. I just did what was required of me because I just wasn't really interested in football. I didn't really love football, but I was good at it. And so in my junior year, I think after, I think it was in maybe spring training, I can't remember, um, he, he kicked me out. He kicked me off the team. I was walking out to practice and he said, get out of here, you will never wear this jersey again. And he kicked me off the team. And at that point I was like, wow, man, you know, I've come up here, I'm a thousand miles from home. I just thought I was gonna be able to ride it out through my five years, get a bachelor's, get my master's degree, and just have my school paid for, and that eventually, maybe my senior year, he would play me. But, you know, he didn't and he got rid of me and I was able to appeal it. So I wrote like a 14 page letter. I remember sending that in and I wrote the letter. I read it to a guy, the guy that I knew, the white gentleman who kind of, who showed me the box, the suite at the football game and courtside. And I read it to him, and he was like, well, Tony, it sounds pretty negative to me. You know, it sounds real negative. sounds really, you know, accusatory. And um, and it was. I mean, I was, throwing, I was lacing it up on the coach, you know, really calling him out for 
just, you know, his prejudice and his attitude and how negative he was. And I wasn't really accepting accountability for me not going hard in practice and things like that. And so after that happened, you know, I remember going home and um, I can't remember. Maybe it was the first semester and then that next semester I was home. But I remember going up to visit, you know, the young lady that I was talking to. And I drove up there and I had rented a Monte Carlo and I had a little BB gun. And I remember taking that BB gun and shooting out my coach office window and shooting out his car windows. Yeah, I was kind of a little thug, you know, because while I was in college, I was, you know, selling weed out the dorm room and selling weed to different students on campus and my teammates. And when I would get injured, I would get injured and I would get these pills, you know, they would give you these oxy cotton or oxycodone I'm not sure what it's called but it's like pain pills and the guys who did drugs they were like hey man you got some pills man for that injury like yeah $15 a pill and they'll come you know give me $15 and they'll buy a pill and I just sell them pills one at a time $15 $20 a pill I don't know what they were using them for but you know, there was someone was them guys were on steroids and different stuff. And so I, you know, sell weed to some of the players, sell pills to some of the other players, just trying to be a little fake thug because that's what my cousins was doing back home. And and then on the weekends, I would go rob stores, you know, I what we call hit a lick. You know, my, my sister boyfriend back home, he didn't did his time now, did 15 years in prison for it. But what they would do is they would go to like a sports authority and they would go in the store and they would get all the dope jerseys, get all the jerseys, throw it on their shoulder. And then they would get close to the register and they would just take off out the door and then somebody pull up, pick them up. So being that my sister told me how, what they did and how they did it. And I just remember them always being fresh. They always had on the latest, nicest jerseys and everything. So what I did up where I was is I went to the store like Marshalls or something like that and and uh, I put me about $500 worth of clothes on my shoulder and I used that 4.340. You know, I'm ashamed of it. I'm not happy about it, but it just, that's where I was, I was operating from because I was lost. Now, see, this is a lesson for parents who are raising kids right now who are getting ready to go to college. Is like you never know your child. You never know what your child is going through, and that's why you have to be even more active because here it was. My dad was a pastor, you know, and on his church, and he preaching every week. And here I am in another state in college stealing from stores after I had went to jail for that, you know, my freshman year. So I'm stealing from stores. And I did it one time that I could remember. And I remember my roommate from New York and another guy from Florida, they were with me. And so they were they were driving the getaway car. Now, mind you, my roommate from New York, father was a doctor, like a, a you know, a big time doctor in New York. and And this guy you know he had a nice nice little living you know and 
uh, then the other guy from Florida, I can't really remember, but he was just a Florida boy, and just up there, and so we just hanging out, kicking, and we were kind of like the pretty boys, so to speak, you know, like, just clean cut, um, chasing around the ladies and stuff like that, and, and I was doing that for my street cred, and to be, because I was didn't get to play I wanted to be affirmed some other kind of way and so that was the thing it was like as men you respect certain types of men so you respect the thug you respect the dope boy you respect the star athlete you know you respect the ladies man so it's different things that get that men give respect for so being that I couldn't be the star athlete I wanted to be the dope boy and the fake thug you know and so people, man, you did what? Man, you crazy. Man, how, how many clothes you got? What? And I'm I'm walking around campus in my new clothes. And, you know, like from Marshalls back then, $500, $500 lick was about 15, 20 outfits. And I remember, you know, the young lady I was talking to, like, what? You did what? But, you know, still at the same time thinking that that was low-key sexy and it just was lost and so that's what I was up there doing and so when I got kicked out it, it just I feel like honestly I feel like my coach probably heard that I was you know selling weed to some of the players probably heard that I stole from the store I'm pretty sure his son was telling him everything and it's probably why he let his son play play my position and um because his son was literally and no kidding his son was probably about half as athletic as i was but his son's locker was right next to me and um which was also weird because his son you know played fullback but we kind of were all in the same area fullbacks and tailbacks but his son was literally right next to me and so I've been in the locker room politicking and I was just operating from insecurity and I really was a jerk. You know, I really was. Ah, y'all boys out there got to go to practice. <laughs> Ooh, fake me old injury. <laughs> fake me an injury. <laughs> Have fun at practice, fellas. Yeah. I'm going out there and I'm bragging about faking injuries and not having to practice. And the coach son sitting right next to me. And I just was not thinking about it. I just, it didn't cross my mind and I just was doing it, but it was from insecurity. I really was jealous of the guys getting to play. And my, my roommate, you know, he he started playing my position. He running, he's running back, but he's really a wide receiver. And he playing running back and he just was really fast. So it was no glitz and glam. He just hand him the ball. He run around the side get to the sideline, run straight up the field. And he, this guy was running like 55, 60-yard touchdowns. So, And I was better at running back than him. So seeing him do that, I knew I could be doing that and had that clout around the campus. And, you know, I could have made me some noise for four years straight and then been able to try out for an NFL team just being an athlete, being 5'10", having potential. Like our quarterback, who was not in, that impressive to me, but he got an NFL tryout because we were back-to-back -back conference champions. And so it was jealousy. It was insecurity. And this is what I can speak to, and this is what I can express as a grown man now. Being a grown man, I could recognize a grown boy in me back then. And so when I came home, 
here I am. I'm at home and I'm, you know, I get I get into college in Florida and that's August, October, I meet my wife and I was kind of dealing with the young lady still who was think she transferred from that school to another she transferred from the school we were in West Virginia to another school and which was like all all girls school and I was still talking to her but it was long distance and as I tell you all often long distance is not real and so I was looking for a replacement I was looking for a new relationship because I'm like this long distance stuff this for the birds and it's a long drive like seven hours or something for me so when i met my wife i immediately cut off my girlfriend that i had and went from one relationship right to the next that's why i teach now heal before you deal because when i went from one relationship right to the next i brought the same toxic behaviors controlling insecure you know dominant tried to bring that to my wife and that's why we only lasted a few months the first time because i was just questioning her too much and i wasn't being her peace i wasn't an upgrade from her boyfriend that she had been with and so she left me and when she left me you know i remember dropping out of college just because the work was just too much i didn't really have study skills i didn't know how to study I wasn't raised in a school system that really challenged me or taught us how to study or anything like that. So I dropped out that first semester and then I re-enrolled in January that next semester, but I owed like $982, I remember. And the gentleman that I told y'all about that took me to the basketball and football games, he paid that $982 for me. And... I got back in college and it was around that time that probably later that semester is when around May-ish when I reconnected with my wife and we, you know, we hit it off and we were talking and then I remember in that six months that we did not talk, I started back selling drugs. I had stopped doing that. I started back selling drugs. I started back, you know, I started up the Dazzling Dimes, which was like a modeling troupe where the young ladies would go into the club and they would twerk, a couple of them would twerk in their boy shorts and people would throw tips and I'd pick up the tips and then I, I'd take my 10% or 20%, I can't remember, and then I'd split up the rest between them. And there wasn't really no real money, but we college students and we on a budget. And the young ladies, they were like nursing major, you know, stuff like that, pre-med and pre-law or, you know, different things. And so that, when I met my wife, she was like, I was a totally different person. My life had went down the drain from the representative that I shown her, that I showed her when we first met the first time around. So she kind of, she was in there a little bit, you know, she came in she felt the 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 scenery the vibe of what was going on in my life and she kind of she helped me in that for a a little bit like just navigate through the street life and but then she told me she was like hey we got together like june by like march i believe she was um 
not March, I said June, by like September or something, she was pregnant. And she decided to keep the baby. And December of that year, that was 06, I proposed to her. And so I left, when she got pregnant, that was her way of being able to put her foot down and say, you gotta let this dazzling dime stuff go because this is it's not right for you to, you know, be in a relationship and then you in a club with eight girls while they twerking. And you gotta get out of street life because the girl I'm working with, she lost her guy to prison for seven years. So you gotta leave that alone. And I was like, okay. And so I got out of street life, and at this point, I'm, I, in May of 06, I got a job as a counselor in a group home. And so I'm working in the group home, and I, um, I'm, I'm making like $8.50 an hour, and then go to $9, $9.50. And then she starts working there. And because my wife is working there, she comes in and she gets a raise. And she she gets a raise from $8.50 an hour to $13.50 an hour working for the behavior specialist and writing reports and stuff. And so, you know, me and the, the black girls that worked in that department who were darker than my wife, they had a little conspiracy going. And I, I was in on it, too. Like, I'm telling my wife, this is not fair. You coming in here light-skinned and getting a raise. Because, you know, colorism is a thing. And the lady who gave her the raise was a white woman. So, to us, we looking like we done been here at this company. Any of us could do this job. All of us in college or going to college. Why should we getting the, the job? But for me, I couldn't be too mad because that was my household. So what Cherie was making, it was coming home, you know, with me. So it was my little eight fifty an hour and her thirteen fifty an hour, and then I went to nine fifty an hour and she was at thirteen fifty an hour. But then if she worked overtime, I think you know time and a half, and so she really was bringing home some money. And for us being you know kids in college, and she is Cherie two grades up under me, so I was in technically my fourth year and. And she was in her second year, I think. Um, and then I went my fifth year, sixth year. So here I am. I'm in college a while. But I just was going to class to get the refund checks. And I really wasn't doing my work. And so three semesters in a row, I had a 1.7. And they kicked me out of college and told me I need to go to the community college because we were at a four-year school. And so you see what my life was. It was like I was doing right by my woman, by Cherie, and, you know, treating her with the best respect that I could, that I knew how. But just in my life as a young man, I was lost. And so here I am, you know, 20, 22 in 06, and then in 2006, and then I start writing a book. At the end of that year, when Cherie got pregnant, and and then after I got engaged to her, I'm writing a book because I'm like, I'm working this job, and I need to find a way to change my life and do something major because I lost football, 
the new coach won't at the new Division One school wouldn't let me play. Which if he would have let me play, it probably it, that would have made me keep my grades up. But he said, "I don't have room for you. I can't waste money on you. You only got two years of eligibility left, and you're gonna have to sit out one of those because you're transferring schools. So I can't waste a scholarship on you. So unfortunately, you know, not. But if something changes, I'll let you know. And they didn't need me. The team was good back then for you know for who they played against, and so. Here I am, just lost, and I'm going to school, and, you know, I was, before I met my wife, I'm hollering at different women, and meeting different women, and still doing the same thing I had always been doing, and then when I met her, I shut that down, just because I really, really liked her, I really, really like her, and she just, great personality, great conversation, beautiful face, you know, really just a good person, and I'm like, this could be my wife. And I remember when we first met, we sat down and we talked six hours straight. And I called my mom, my sister, and my homeboy and said, I just met my wife. And I played on her in the areas that she wasn't too wise in. And that was like loving relationships, you know. And she knew to stand her ground and not do things she didn't want to do. But everybody was having sex, you know. Every That was something everybody was doing. So at this time there was no like abstinence movement ironically that's a bigger thing now than it was then and yeah we knew we were supposed to save ourselves but it depends on what's happening in the culture and so if everybody's doing something different where today it's a whole lot of people that's saying they're celibate which actually actually they mean abstinent but that we didn't have social media back then for trends to catch on so there was no Instagram and YouTube for trend and Twitter for trends to catch on and go viral. And then people, you join this trend for, you know, like um, people writing books on waiting until marriage now, you know, with the last few years. But back then there was no black authors that we knew of that was writing self-help books that's sent that's telling you to save yourself until marriage so we're doing what everybody doing and i share that to say that sometimes just the climate of the culture dictates how you live your life if you're not rooted and grounded in your beliefs or if you don't have someone in your ear reminding you of your beliefs and what you're supposed to be doing so nobody our parents weren't in our ear saying hey make sure you wait make sure you wait make sure you wait like we're in our son's ear our oldest son who's 14 we're in his ear and we're gonna stay in his ear because we saw the mistakes we made because our parents just stayed away from that topic they didn't want to talk about it because they thought if they talk about it it would then it would condone it and it would make us feel like we have their permission to go you know have sex and so we're just doing it going through the motions and we we paid the price thank god for turning things around with our son and allowing it to work out in the end but we are an exception to the rule on that and that's what i try to teach people so here we are she gets pregnant we get engaged december 25th on christmas i got a 69 dollar ring off of the home shopping network um hsn or qvc and it's it's three carat fake ring and cost 69 dollars plus you know tax and shipping and i popped the box open and she put it on nobody telling me tony don't get that 70 dollar ring that big 
with all them fake diamonds. Anybody who knows something about a diamond gonna know that ring is just a fake, it's all outdoors. Like you better off just get a little band, just get a little hundred dollar real gold 10 karat band from K's Jewelers. Every kiss began with K. And nobody told me that. They just sitting back watching us do what we do because our parents stressed and worried about their own failures, worrying about their own life. And we just didn't have any guidance and just as, as young folks. So we're doing what we do. And my wife, the thing I love about her, that ring ended up turning black and green. Eventually, she still has that ring to this day. She kept that ring. It is sentimental. It means something to her. She didn't shame me over it. She didn't. You know how, you know, with social media now, a man give a woman a big fake ring, he is getting trolled to no end. My wife wore that ring every day like that thing was real. I do not, I cannot wrap my head around why she did that. I feel absolutely terrible for even putting her through that. And that's why I spend money on her the way I do today. I'm actually in her closet and I'm in this closet and everything I'm looking at in here is designer. And I do this intentionally for her because my wife was with me at the bottom. So it's like, I want her to have the best of the best, the finest of the fine, because this woman wore a $70 three carat cubic zirconia ring for me. And we got married in the courthouse. No money to have a wedding, no reception. We paid, I think, $99 for the marriage certificate, or it could have been $72, them two numbers in my head for some reason. And no, it was $99 and you gotta wait 72 hours before you do it just to make sure you're sure. And so we went there and her mom came because her mom very sentimental like that. She's her mom's only child. And so her mom came and she watched us say our vows and get married. And then from there, that's when I had published my book a month earlier. And that's when, and then a month after marriage. So February 1st, my book is published, 2007. March 8th, 2007, I turned 23 years old. March 30th, 2007, my wife and I get married. April 26, 2007, our first child is born two and a half months early. Two pounds, 10 ounces, 14 inches and three quarters. I remember it like yesterday. He was put in the intensive care unit, the NICU, neonatal intensive care unit. They told my wife he's missing something in his brain. He won't be able to play sports. He won't be able to, you know, run. They handed her a pamphlet on it. She said, you could keep that pamphlet. My son is not missing that. I do not want to hear anything about that. And gave the lady the pamphlet back. And um, my wife went up there every single day. I did not understand science. My wife was in college, you know, a biomedical science major. So she understood the terminology they used she understood the the medicine or like just the techniques and the equipment she knew about it she was familiar about it because she had done clinicals in high school clinicals in college 
So she had like a piece. Me, I thought that was my son's deathbed because I didn't understand. I did not think some a baby could be born two pounds and live. And so I was like, you know, any day expecting our son to die. And so I stayed away because like I would go up there once a week and I was working, you know, five days a week and my wife stopped working so that she could go up there every day and um or at least going into work i think she may have worked from home just writing the reports the behavior reports for the clients in the group home but she did that as long as she could and then eventually she had to stop working and then from there we got on WIC. you know WIC is the government assistance where you get like the little cereal and peanut butter and stuff like that maybe formula for the baby we got on food stamps and we moved into like the hood. It was like these little wooden apartments. And I remember my son was in an intensive care unit and I got a refund check from, from school. And I probably, it probably, so he was born in April. So I can't remember if I got the check in like, I can't remember if it was, maybe it was. So June, July, August, maybe it was August. I got the the check and so it was $2,200. And instead of putting it up for bills or anything like that, my wife was like, you know, you can have the money. Like you, I know you really want some rims. And I went and bought some 22 inch rims. So, so crazy. No, that was in the, that was in, I'm lying. It wasn't August. Maybe it was for summer school or maybe it was earlier that uh, maybe it was earlier that year before he was born, like that spring semester. And so I'm riding around, I got my 22s on my car and I'm fly Impala on the highway, making money to fly away. Then they gotta be a bit away. So here I am, you know, I'm out there baller shot caller 20 but i 22s and i'm the only one in the city with that kind of that model car with 22s and still ain't living right and doing the right thing as far as you know mentally i had did a little drive-by shootout of somebody windows uh, for my wife um, somebody that had been bothering her and it was like a week after that I got robbed or maybe a couple weeks and for my car. So 22s was stolen, dash. I had a TV screen system in there from my friend, my white friend from the private school that would, you know, take me to the, to the basketball and football games. He had this really nice in dash TV screen thing that comes out. He gave that to me free of charge because he didn't, he had a new one. And so I put that in my Impala. And so I had that screen and I had my 22s. I thought I was the man. And so I was trying to look cool, look like a dope boy, even though I had let the streets go. But having that car, I ended up going back to the streets, trying to look the part that I was pretending. And so I was lost. You know, I was I was ignorant. I was a grown boy. I was, you know, just shaped shake your head type 
ignorant. But the crazy thing about it is I was no different than any guy I knew. Like, this is just what men go through. Like, we do very stupid things. And so if you look at your boyfriend, your husband, and you hear his story, I'm pretty sure he can share some really mind-boggling stories with you that will even mind-boggle him. And that's what happened. And so I get robbed. I go to church the next day. I rededicate my life to Christ at 23 years old. Our son's still in the intensive care unit in the NICU, I mean. And after that, I just lock in. And I say, I'm going to start pushing this book. So I started just pushing the book. And I'm passing out business cards and flyers at the mall, everywhere I go. I'm on MySpace. I'm adding 400 friends a day. I get on Facebook. I'm adding 200 friends a day. And I'm just pushing this book. I'm speaking at Boys and Girls Club. I'm trying to get my name out there. I spoke at Bethune-Cookman University for $65 and some chicken wings and pineapples in my dressing room right after I published the book, which was in February. And so my wife, I'm working. She's trying to work from home. And I think, I can't remember when she had to let that job go, when she couldn't produce anymore. But we just, we're building from there. You know, and we living in this place, no furniture. And after I get robbed, we find a way to move out of there. We move out of there and we move into no disrespect, what what we would call the white neighborhood. And so you're not around, you know, blacks and Hispanics or you know, you kind of is separated by race. And so you move out here and then there's some black people in there and there's some other minorities in there, but it's very, very few. And the rent went from like 800 to $935. And, but we had a gate, the gate wouldn't be working all the time. And we got in there and my wife, she just, she was resourceful. She made a way. When I tell you she made a way, like she, she could make, you know, if she need to make her some pay stubs, she can make her some pay stubs or whatever she had to do for us to be able to get up like we had to get it, you know. So not having a job sometimes for her, me, you know, not having a job. And so my wife, she just was like she won she was resourceful, but she didn't condone like illegal activity me going to the streets she didn't condone me robbing or stealing she was like we just got to use these food stamps use this wick our son was getting an ssi check i think it's called for being born early she was like we got to use this and there we were there i believe it was 2008 2009 uh 2010 and three years and then coming in after the end of 2010 2009 stuff started to pick up for me i got on twitter i I got on oprah march 19th 2009 i think that was a thursday the next tuesday i was recording uh tyra Banks show that aired i think in april and then in june i believe 
in May or June, the 700 Club, TBN, the 700 Club aired. And that was all in 2009. And then I'm online and I'm I'm building on Twitter. And I just started, my, my friend, the white friend, he told me, Tony, get on Twitter. You're doing all this cool stuff, get on Twitter. I got on Twitter and I started tweeting. And then I said, let me tweet quotes. Because on Facebook, I was posting a quote every day from a motivational quote app that I had downloaded out of the iStore, uh, the app store. And so I'm posting these quotes. And on after re- posting so many quotes, I say, you know what? I want to go down in history. I want my name to be remembered forever with the wisdom that God has given me. So I'm going to create my own quote. So I started creating my own quotes. And from there... The quote started to build, started to pick up and start to go viral. And I remember it was Alicia Keys who I had tweeted her that I was going to book her for a youth summit. I didn't have a dime to my name to do that, but I was trying to get her attention or some celebrity's attention that I felt was humble so that they could see who I was and so that they could follow me and they could see my quotes. And sure enough, she followed me. And then about three weeks into following me, one day she retweeted me when she retweeted me it like got me like 2500 followers and I think at that time I had like 200 followers and it was like I felt like her or whoever was running her account said hey more people need to see this content this this young man is putting out and so from there it a lot of celebrities started following me you know um, P Diddy started sharing my quotes Rev Run was sharing my quotes he was stealing them at first um, and then I called whoever was running his account i called him out and they apologized publicly they added me that sent me some followers on twitter and then just a lot of people it was mostly all music artists and then later athletes will start to trickle in but 2010 i got my opportunity this young lady connected me with a consultant for the NBA and NFL and she told the MBPA about me which is the National Basketball Players Association and they let me come speak to the top 100 high school players and then from there they called me back a couple months and they let me speak to the 60 rookies in 2010 that was a class of John Wall I believe and I spoke to the rookies and then from from there in 2011 after speaking for the NBA rookies and speaking for the top 100 and going on Oprah and going on Tyra, I think my friend that I went to private school with was just shocked. I think he was blown away like, wow, Tony is really making a name for himself. Like he's he's really blowing up. And he reached out to me and he was like, hey, what will it take to take your brand to the next level? And I told him, man, I got to get off this job because I was still working. Uh, making nine dollars and fifty cents an hour and he said how much do you make a year i said twenty thousand and he said well i'll give you twenty thousand for twenty percent of your company and i was like okay because i was worth zero and then i was like better yet let's do thirty five thousand he said okay i'll do thirty five thousand for thirty five percent and i was like okay so when he gave me that thirty five thousand i took and I got me and my family out of the neighborhood that we went to that we thought was going to be better. And it was better, but more and more people started to move in, you know. And we left there and we went to a gated neighborhood, 
where the pro athletes, like the pro football players, pro baseball players live in this neighborhood. And we rented, you know, the cheapest house in there, but it was really nice. It's on a lake, three bedroom, two bath, you know, tile floors, wood floors, whatever you call it, back porch, paved driveway with the pavers. It was nice. And I told my wife, we're going to move on up, baby. We're moving from this 935 a month, find us somewhere that's no more than 1200 a month. She went and find this place. This place is $1,500 a month. And she called me. I love it. I said, you know what? All right. Tell them we'll do it. I had no clue in the world how we could barely pay $9.35, how we was about to pay $1,600 a month. Not including, you know, lights, water, cable, internet. And sure enough we moved in that place and we never once was late on the pavement god met our needs he met us on that level of increase and my my partner my friend he kept blessing me he supported me it went from investment then he'll do business loans and he kept helping me out and so a lot of people the thing was is he was helping me in in the wrong way in in a way that it was crippling me but he didn't know but i was just spending that money you know just living and then i was earning a living because after being off my job for like a year earn and leaving twenty thousand dollars a year on my job when i started you know speaking and writing books doing one-on-one coaching ghost writing and author consulting i remember probably 2012 or something I think it was 2012 I made 150,000 it was 147,000 to be exact and of course I probably you know didn't didn't remember to add everything so it was 150,000 dollars that I made and I was blown away because I remember at 25 telling myself one day I'm gonna make six figures and I had no clue how I would get there and so from that time, from 2012, I've just been doing the same thing. The same, what I do today, and people always say to me, where do you want your brand to go? Where do you see your career going? And I'll say, I'm doing what I, would, what I do for the rest of my life. It just, your income changes as every year you get older, you get wiser, you get more respect, you garner more respect from people because you've lasted another year without a scandal. And your following grows so the foundation has already always been there you know a billion dollar foundation between film books tech companies um just the services it's a it's a billion dollar infrastructure that god gave me to implement and to put in place and now it's just about staying consistent and building with purpose and intention and integrity and staying out of trouble you know, I made my mistakes early in marriage. Me and my wife, we went through them first couple years was real tough. But God graced us to make it through it, get through that power struggle of us trying to see who's going to serve who, who's going to be the boss. And we here. So, hey, this cuts off at 60 minutes. And, you know, the rest of my story is pretty much a lot of the same. So I just want to share that to you on 
how that break came and it speaks to that book the outlier to where a lot of times we look at people and we don't realize how we got there but sometimes everybody has some type of unique breakthrough or advantage that came and for me it was my friend just pushing me and encouraging me and supporting me in the tough times when I could have fell apart and lost it all hey Tony Gaskins thank you so much for listening we'll talk soon